February 3rd, 1969, Eastern Airlines Flight 7. 93 passengers were flying on a Boeing 727 from Newark, New Jersey to Miami, Florida. Suddenly, the captain walked out of the cockpit and declared that they were not going to Florida. They were being hijacked. However, the general reaction of the travelers on board was not fear or panic. Most were annoyed and several were actually amused. They thought that the two men holding a knife to the neck of a stewardess were just playing a joke. Why weren't these passengers afraid? Why would they assume the two armed men weren't serious? And how has our perspective on plane hijackers changed so radically from that flight in 1969 to now? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, and welcome to Black Box Down. How'd I do, Gus? Pretty good. I'm, I'm enthralled. I want to know more. I don't, actually don't know this incident. <laughs> I, I feel you know, like you started talking and I was like, I don't have a notepad or anything. Like, I don't have a way to keep notes. <laughs> So uh, I'm Chris, and I know nothing about airplanes other than this podcast, and Gus is my friend who normally tells me about all the plane crashes, but uh, I read about this uh, particular flight, and I thought it was crazy and interesting, and I talked to our producer, Dennis, about me detailing an episode, and now I'm going to tell you all about all about these hijackings. Eastern Airlines number seven. People thought it was a joke. Mm-hmm. That's wild to me. I guess uh, even over my lifetime, I feel like... I've seen people's attitudes towards hijacking and takeovers in planes radically change. You know, I think when I was younger, you know, you would always hear that, like, if a plane's hijacked, don't resist, just, you know, go with it. They're going to land and negotiate and Mm -hmm. you'll get off the plane later. But then after September 11th, like that changed. Like then people were told like, oh, you got to fight back. You can't let them take the plane. Yeah. And it's crazy. I mean, that's kind of what we'll get into uh, it's about just the public and the government. Everyone's view on hijackers just changes over time. But we could start with this particular flight, and then we'll kind of get into the changes that occurred over time. So where'd you say it was flying from where to where? Yeah, so Eastern Airlines Flight 7. This flight took place on February 3rd, 1969. 93 people on their way from Newark to Miami. However, two of the passengers didn't want to go to Miami. They wanted to go to Cuba. And since the U.S. had an embargo against Cuba, it's not like they could exactly go catch a flight. Yeah, but I mean, this flight's going New York to Miami, so it's going most of the way to Cuba. They just have to go a little further. Yeah, it's just a little detour. (laughs) And they couldn't catch a flight there, so they decided to take control of a flight. Uh, They walked to the front of the plane in ill-fitting suits and pulled out a knife on a stewardess and demanded the pilot fly to Cuba. The captain stayed calm, didn't argue, and then he coolly announced to the passengers that there were two men with knives at the front of the plane who seemed to want to go to Cuba, so they're going to do that. They seem to want to go to Cuba. (laughs) That's that's what they seem to want to go. (laughs) They've got some knives. They're not really being clear. They're they're not wearing suits that fit. I think they want to go to Cuba. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's just the quote from the newspaper that we found. (laughs) We're going with it. The passengers didn't scream and there wasn't any real panicking. And several of the travelers were excited. (laughs) They didn't want to really go to Miami. (laughs) No, they were convinced that it was all a prank. Prank? Yes, because Alan Funt was on the plane. (laughs) Alan (laughs) Funt? Do you know who he is? 
Alan Fudd, he was the old host of uh, Candid Camera. Yes. Candid Camera was a very popular TV show all about practical jokes with hidden cameras. In fact, most of his crew for the show was on the plane as well. Unfortunately, they were not filming a TV show and there were no hidden cameras. So people thought it was like, <laughs> it was like, there wasn't reality TV, but it was kind of like hidden camera TV. It's like, a, yes. like the precursor to reality TV. So everyone thought they were on a hidden camera show. <laughs> And that it was all set up? Well, and I'd say everyone, but some of the people on the plane thought that. But, uh, <laughs> okay, that's an interesting uh, take. Like, I wouldn't think that just because I saw Alan Funt that we were, they were filming. Like, he would hide, yeah. wouldn't he? Like, he wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't see him and be like, oh, they're going to do a joke now. He was too recognizable. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I'm saying. There was like, some people thought he was, they were joking, some didn't. It turns out he was in the process of uh, completing his first feature film, What Do You Say to a Naked Lady? And so him, his family, and his crew, they were traveling for some business for that film. And I just want to have a side tangent here. I actually have seen the film, What Do You Say to a Naked Lady? I've never heard of it. It's bizarre. I think it popped up on Reddit at some point, like years and years ago when I was in college. And me and my roommate, it had a, it has its... A crazy soundtrack that's all, what do you say to a naked lady that you <laughs> hardly know? That's like, they have a whole, anyway, you can look it up. Is there a naked lady in yes, this movie? It's all, about, like, it's all about like random people walking, like naked ladies walking out of elevators and saying, oh, excuse me. And then people's reactions. It's kind of like a candid camera episode, but yeah. with a naked lady. Yeah, it's like a, a rated R candid camera episode. So that's what he was doing. He was not... Uh, hijacking planes for jokes. He was filming naked ladies for jokes. Okay. So did you like the movie is the question I want to know now. I think we, me and my roommate were kind of drunk when we were watching it and we just kind of put it on the background. Really, we were more about the soundtrack than the movie. Well, now uh, I, I want to I hear, hear this. <laughs> so back to the plane. Even though there was a large man holding a knife to the neck of a stewardess, Funt said at least four passengers sneakily asked him if it was all a stunt for a candid camera. Several hours later, when they landed in Cuba and still hadn't told everyone to smile because they're on candid camera, everyone realized that it was definitely a real hijacking. According to Funt, the passengers and crew were fed in Cuba and treated with courtesy, but anytime they asked about going home or where the plane is, nobody knew anything. Flash forward 11 hours and the Cubans had found the plane again, but only after the hijackers got about $5,000. So the crew and the travelers reboarded the plane and flew back to the U.S. Wait, did you say the Cubans found the plane again? Yeah, as in like while they were in Cuba, they'd be like, hey, we want to go home. Where's the plane? And they're like, we don't know. You know, 11 hours later, they're like, oh, hey, okay, yeah, we know where the plane is. Okay, y'all can leave now. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. They're like, okay, gotcha. Like the Cuban government. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or, who, yeah, whoever they were dealing with, they were like, oh, yeah, we don't know where the plane is right now. Y'all are going to have to stay here. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, I see what you mean. They were like, they were they, they had taken the passengers off the plane, and mm -hmm. they were like, were holding them off the plane. Okay, I see. I thought they were on the plane. Okay, that makes sense. So everyone got back on the plane, and they flew back to the U.S., and throughout all of this, Alan Funt says the only negative reaction from the passengers were that they were a little annoyed at the delay. No one was really afraid or panicking. Well, I mean, worst case scenario, they were going to Miami anyway. Like, they had the correct luggage. Like, if they had to stay in Cuba, yeah. like, everyone had their swimsuit yeah. and, like, their, their, their warm weather clothes. They were fine. Yeah. Well, quick side note. 
this incident has been sensationalized a bit. So there are some accounts, some crazy accounts, even from like Funt's uh, daughter, who was like two years old at the time, that like when the hijackers came out of the cockpit, that everyone gave them a standing ovation and people were popping champagne. It wasn't that exciting. But anyway, it, it was sensationalized a little bit. So it's a pretty wild story, right? That people would be yeah. so cavalier about a plane hijacking. So while looking into this incident, we found out that it wasn't just a hidden camera show host that made everyone so relaxed. Imagine if you were on a plane and Ashton Kutcher was there and then hijackers took over. And it was also the year 2000. Yeah. <laughs> uh, people wouldn't assume it was an episode of Punk. People would probably freak out, right? Now, modern day, right? Right, right. Thing is, is hijackings in the mid 20th century were super common. Like that incident, Eastern Airlines Flight 7, that took place on February 3rd. And it was already the 12th hijacking that year. So like the, the year was literally barely over a month old. It's like yeah. a hijacking every three days. Yeah. So hijackings were super common and they were really just seen as a slight inconvenience to both airliners and passengers. So I'm going to go through kind of a quick history of hijackings in the mid 20th century and then highlight three important ones that basically changed the way the public and our government think about hijackers. I'm, I'm excited. So as I said, there were a lot of hijackings in the 60s and 70s, but most of them had one destination, which was Cuba. As we said, America had an embargo against Cuba, so stealing a plane was relatively easy way to get to Cuba. Plus it's really close, right? Yeah, and you couldn't get there legally from the U.S. So in 1969, there were over 30 hijackings to Cuba alone. Wow. And what started this trend was on May 1st, 1961, the nation's first official act of air piracy. There was a 49-year-old Miami electrician and Korean war veteran named Antulio Ramirez Ortiz. He booked a flight from Miami to Key West on National Airlines Flight 337 under the name Alpir Confresi. During the flight, he pulled a steak knife and a gun on Captain Francis Riley and ordered him to fly to Cuba. Ortiz told the captain that he'd been offered $100,000 to assassinate Fidel Castro. But, in a good twist, Ortiz sympathized with Castro and the Cuban people, and he wanted to go and warn the dictator about the assassination conspiracy. Uh-huh. Right. There's also another article that cited that he claimed to have a bomb. So we're a little unclear. He claimed he had a bomb, but actually pulled a knife. Regardless, the pilot and crew complied with the threat. The plane was diverted to Havana, where Ortiz disembarked without incident. The aircraft then returned to Key West. No one was physically injured, and Ortiz was granted immediate asylum by the Cuban government. Weird. It, it sounds strange, but when you said he had a steak knife and a gun, I would think maybe he wanted to go to Texas instead. <laughs> well, the thing that's funny about uh, Ortiz is three years later, after he'd been in Cuba for a while, he decided he wanted to go back to the U.S. So while he was trying to get a flight out, the Cuban government arrested him for espionage. So then he went to Cuban jail because they thought, he, oh, he's been here for three years. Now he's trying to leave and uh, he's a spy. So then he was in and out of jail in Cuba for 11 years trying to leave. And then finally, 14 years later, after he left the U.S., he got back. And then he was immediately arrested for hijacking that plane. 
that of he course. took. Of course. Yeah. So, so this is a weird dude, okay? Just to clarify then, the uh-huh. embargo is both ways, right? Like there's no way to get from the U.S. to Cuba, and there's also no way to legally get from Cuba to the U.S. That's why I assume he was caught, and that's why he encountered all this trouble. Are, are you allowed to, I'm not sure if Cubans were allowed to go to the U.S. Do you, I found an article on history.com that says in 1965, Castro announced that Cubans who want to leave the island were free to do so. So I guess before that, maybe they weren't allowed to leave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 1961 was also like, I mean, this was pretty much a low point. Or it's getting close to a low point in like Cuba-U.S. relations, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, 1961 is the year the Bay of Pigs invasion happened. Uh, Cuban Missile Crisis happened in 1962. So it's, uh, yeah. it's tense between the two countries, to say the least. Yeah. And you have, you know, Ortiz playing both sides. <laughs> wanting to go back and forth uh, yeah i guess the grass is always greener he was always trying to move on it's just funny that he's he was he spent so much time in jail in cuba trying to escape back to the u.s and then yeah so that incident is important because it basically started the trend of hijacking planes which as i said became pretty common in the 60s in response in september of 1961 President Kennedy started the first uh, Sky Marshal program and signed into federal law several criminal sanctions for aircraft hijackings, ranging from a minimum of 20 years imprisonment to the death penalty. Wow. So I didn't realize, I guess, like you said, they called them Sky Marshals. I didn't, you know, we have air marshals nowadays. I didn't realize it went that far back. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was like plane travel, I guess, was so new that there just weren't, there weren't as many laws and, and, and prevention things, you know? Yeah. That incident was the first time that hijackings were seen as an apparent threat, but the public wasn't very concerned because it really, again, it just seemed like an inconvenience. They just, they had to get off at Cuba for a bit, buy some cigars, hang out, and then go back, you know? You want Chinese, they want pizza, someone's craving froyo. Trust me, there's something for everyone on DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings food you're craving right now, right to your door. Ordering's easy. Just open up the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat. Your food will be left safely outside your door with the new contactless delivery drop-off setting. With over 300,000 partners in the U.S., Puerto Rico, Canada, Australia, you can support your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, Cheesecake Factory. Uh, Many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery. Just open up the DoorDash app, select your favorite local restaurant, your food will be left right at your door. So easy. DoorDash deliveries are now contactless to keep communities they operate in safe. So right now, our listeners get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code BLACKBOXDOWN. Hey, that's our podcast. That's $5 off and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store, enter code BLACKBOXDOWN. Don't forget, that's code BLACKBOXDOWN for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. This episode is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. I know every day somebody tells you you just have to listen to some podcasts and you nod and say, sure, you never listen to it. Don't let that happen here. Uh, Jordan Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better, informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest. And when I say there's something for everyone here, I really mean that. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which, you know, sounds useful and disturbing at the same time. Uh, Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle, made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. Uh, There's another one with a guy, uh, Joaquin Garcia, 
who was an undercover FBI agent in the mafia uh, for a couple of years. Super interesting. There's also one came out a couple of weeks ago with Amanda Knox, who was convicted twice and ultimately exonerated for a murder she didn't commit. Don't you want to hear her story? Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests, and we're not talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff here. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. I mean, if that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. So we really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. So while hijackings to Cuba were common, hijackers in the U.S. rarely tried to go anywhere else until 1969. An Italian man named Raphael Minicello took a plane all the way from Los Angeles to Rome. Los Angeles to Rome? Yeah. Where was that plane originally supposed to go? Well, let me tell you. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So a little background on Raphael. When he was 12, his family moved to the U.S. from Italy, and then he fought in the Vietnam War. Once he got back to the U.S. from Vietnam, he believed he was uh, underpaid, I think he said he owed, he was owed $200. So one night he got drunk, robbed a military store, and then passed out in the store and was caught. Mm. So the day before his scheduled court-martial, October 31st, 1969, Raphael boarded a plane from Los Angeles to San Francisco, Transworld Airlines Flight 85. That's not a very far flight. Nope, it isn't. One of the flight attendants, uh, her name is Charlene Delmonico, noticed something sticking out of Raphael's uh, backpack when he boarded. But the other flight attendants told her it was probably a fishing rod. Turns out they were wrong because later Raphael walked up to those same flight attendants with an M1 rifle. Wow, that's, that's not a fishing rod. <laughs> yeah, go fish. <laughs> he handed the flight attendants a bullet and demanded to be taken to the cockpit. Once there, he ordered the plane to be flown to New York and the pilots consented. Again, that's a much further flight than going to San Francisco. They had enough fuel for this? Yeah. So during this time, Raphael became flustered and decided he wanted to go to Rome instead of New York. However, both destinations were impossible because they only had fuel for San Francisco. As okay, you, <laughs> there you as go. As you noticed. And also, no one on board was qualified to fly internationally. So they flew to Denver to refuel. And once there, Raphael allowed the passengers to leave the plane along with the flight attendants, except for one. From Denver, they then flew to New York, where the FBI was waiting, some disguised as mechanics hoping to sneak on board. And the FBI really didn't want to set a precedent of people taking a plane to another continent because that had never been done on a U.S. flight. Mm -hmm. What kind of plane was this again? Uh, It was a uh, Boeing 707. Okay, okay. I got you. I'm following along. It's an interesting choice for Italy to San Francisco, but fine. So they're in New York. Uh, They're about to be refueled, and the FBI starts approaching, and Raphael fires his gun. Now, he didn't hit anyone, and in fact, uh, most people believe he didn't even mean to fire it, but the captain of the plane didn't know that, and not wanting a shootout around explosive materials, the captain just yelled that they're leaving without refueling. And then so two pilots qualified to fly internationally from Transworld Air pushed their way onto the plane, and they left. So then the plane landed in Bangor, Maine, where it got enough fuel to fly across the Atlantic. Okay. Okay, and then after a short stop in Ireland... The plane flew to Rome, where it landed, and our hijacker, Raphael, avoided arrest by taking a cop hostage. Oh, my God. 
Yeah. They knew he was coming and they still, <laughs> the cops still got taken hostage. It's not like they just showed up out of nowhere and grabbed a hostage. They knew he was coming. It was like a bus. This guy's taking like seven <laughs> stops on the way to Italy. I know. I mean, but you know, he was, he went to Vietnam. Maybe he was good with a gun. I don't well, know. While he was on the plane, did he like paint a fake mustache on his face? I was like, he's in there. Go get him. And he like grabbed one of the police officers. <laughs> uh, so he has this cop hostage, and he demands a car uh, take him to Naples, but he was followed by the police. Uh, eventually, the car he was in came to a dead end, and Raphael sprinted away, and he was later found by a priest and turned over to authorities. The Italian public were fascinated with Raphael and his crime. I'm fascinated by Raphael's yeah. crime. <laughs> uh, and they actually had a lot of sympathy for him. You know, he was an Italian who fought in the traumatic Vietnam War, and he was just trying to get home back to Italy. He was also a good-looking guy and a bit of a heartthrob. As such, Raphael was only sentenced to seven and a half years in prison. Seven and a half years in prison in the U.S. or in Italy? In Italy. Uh, okay. But that sentence was reduced to 18 months. Wow. He was released on May 1st, 1971. So he, he barely served any jail time for this. And due to his newfound fame... He was promised a career as a nude model and even signed a contract to star in a spaghetti western film. A nude model? <laughs> yeah. But neither of those really panned out and he just, you know, kind of lived his life. He actually ended up later on going back to the US and didn't have any charges, funny enough. I, I can't believe that. Yeah, it's it's wild. Anyway, his hijacking was the first US plane to be taken to another continent and was the longest hijacking at that time at over 18 hours long. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah, that's a really long time, which again drives home the point, the Italian police officer should have known that he was coming. Like <laughs> <laughs> they weren't expecting uh Raphael, the Italian heartthrob. Maybe the police officer's like, "No, this guy's too good looking to be a hijacker. <laughs> this can't possibly be him. This is a man I want to see naked." There was even speculation that Rambo was based off of his story, but hmm. th then that was later denied, but Oh, okay. So anyway, I mean, this guy's like, all these stories are wild. So that hijacking basically paved the way for hijackers to go to destinations that were way further than Cuba. For example, in 1971, a plane was taken from San Antonio to Mexico to Peru, then to Brazil, and then finally Argentina. Wow. So they're just like taking little road trips <laughs> across, the, <laughs> across the globe. Yeah, I guess like if going from San Antonio, like making all, like Mexico is not that far no. away. It's like, you're going to go there and then just like continue on your, on your trek. This yeah. guy going to Italy, he crossed the entire United States. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's crazy too, because you would think every time they would land to get fuel or go to another destination, that was when they would get stopped right. or captured but nah guess not okay because again this wasn't a thing that people did so there wasn't like a a response team like here's the rule book because no one did it people didn't just globe hop like that yeah but i mean they don't have to fuel the plane up they just be like no we're not gonna put fuel in the plane but here's the deal i mean most of it was like most of the time that it wasn't that dangerous people weren't getting killed and they weren't demanding money they're like just let, do what they say and, and it'll end up better because no one will die i guess so and that's the thing it's like all these hijackings were just motivated by people trying to get somewhere maybe they would want some small amounts of cash like an eastern airlines flight but it was really just about the destination you're just describing air travel yeah yeah well it's they're just the like destination it's just free air travel by gunpoint uh <laughs> 
But uh, this next event is what kind of kicked off the trend of hijackers asking for big ransoms. And that's more like you would expect to see in movies. It began with a man named Arthur Gates Barkley. Barkley was 49 when he believed the IRS owed him $471.78. He tried to get his case heard by the Supreme Court, but they refused. So, on June 4th, 1970, he set out to settle it his own way. He booked a ticket on Transworld Airlines Flight 486 from Phoenix to Washington, D.C. At this time, security had increased somewhat, and the Transworld Airline agents were responsible for selecting passengers to be screened with a metal detector. Not all the passengers were screened, just selected ones? Just selected ones, yes. Sure, why not? (laughs) But Barkley was not seen as suspicious. He walked onto the plane with a 22 caliber pistol, a straight razor, and a can full of gasoline. Oh my God. (laughs) Nobody smelled the fact this guy had a can of gasoline? I guess not. Maybe it was in a bag. It was a non-suspicious can of gasoline bag. I don't know. What do you have in that bag? Gasoline. (laughs) All right. In case we need to refuel. (laughs) You don't seem suspicious at all. Just uh, go ahead and sit next to that guy with the fishing rod. (laughs) So early on to the flight, Barkley goes into the cockpit and threatens to incinerate everyone unless he was given $100 million dollars taken straight from the Supreme Court. Wow. Officials from Transworld Airlines were baffled because usually people just wanted to go to Cuba and no one had demanded money in exchange for passengers like this before. What year was this again? This was in 1970. So this is after Raphael went to Italy. And so there were hijackers were starting to go bigger places. And this was the first one they hear. He was like, I want big money. So Transworld Airlines decided to give him some of the money. Obviously, they didn't have like $100 million they could just grab. So when the plane landed, the airline rounded up $100,750 and gave it to him at Dulles Airport in D.C. I I want to throw something out here real fast. Uh If you give me a second, Chris. Yeah. I was curious. And uh, I looked up an inflation calculator. Uh Uh-huh. $100 $100 million in 1970 is the equivalent to $667 million today. $667 million. So this guy was asking for close two-thirds of a billion dollars. I want a billion dollars straight from the Supreme Court. <laughs> from the Supreme Court. So if they gave him $100,000, like you said, that's like $667,000 in today money. Just to a, put it in frame of reference for like today's cash. That's not bad. That's a lot of money. Yeah. But not to Barkley. He was furious when he found out that they shorted him so much money, and he demanded the plane take off again. He then radioed out and addressed President Nixon directly, saying, you don't know how to count money, and you don't even know the rules of law. Uh, He's (laughs) accusing someone else of not knowing the rules of law? (laughs) Nixon. Well, to be fair, Nixon didn't know the rules of law, as we later found out. So You got me there. He was right, technically, but... After circling Dulles Airport for a couple more hours and making suicidal threats, he gave one more chance for the money to be brought to him. This time, the FBI took charge and lined up 100 mailbags along the runway, each seemingly with $1 million in it. In actuality, they were stuffed with newspaper scraps. When the plane landed, a marksman shot out the landing gear. This caused passengers to panic. Uh, One passenger kicked open the emergency exit, and everyone starts scrambling out. Why would he kick out the exit? (laughs) You think think he would just open it normally? Well, I don't know. Kicked out, opened. That's what, what? Did he kick it out, Dennis? Or did he open it? 
Oh, that's what I read. We're just gonna go with kicking because that's more exciting. I like that he just uh, he gets so like in the moment. He's like, I'm never gonna have a chance to do this ah! again. <laughs> he like kicks <laughs> the door open. The article says a panicked passenger reacted to the gunfire by kicking open one of the jet's emergency exits. All right, he kicked it open. So everyone starts tumbling out. The FBI at this point raids the plane, and then they get into a shootout with Barkley. He ends up being shot in the hand and is taken into custody. Later, Barkley declares himself incompetent to stand trial in November of 1971 and was committed to a psychiatric hospital in Georgia. And sadly, he never got his $100 million from the Supreme Court. <laughs> sadly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so after this event became highly publicized, it sparked a new trend of American hijackers demanding big money. By 1972, the majority of hijackings involved demands for ransom. It's almost like every time there's a big hijacking story, all the other hijackers are like, huh, that's a good idea. We should do that. And it kind of just leads to a bunch more of them. Yeah, like everyone's learning. They're, they're like taking steps. Yeah. So looking back to the 60s, when hijackings were really starting to take off, sorry for the pun, um, hijackers weren't really considered a big threat. They were just an inconvenience because... Again, the planes would go to Havana, hijacker would get off, and then everyone would fly back. And really, there wasn't even much of an effort to prevent hijackings. All right? The airlines believed that security screenings would alienate their customers, who would then choose to just drive to their destinations. Wow. Yeah. They're like, well, we don't want to alienate the customer. I mean, it was a relatively newer way to go somewhere, you know? Yeah. And to be fair... There wasn't a big outcry for tougher security on planes from the public. So, Despite all of the hijackings, there was not a call for more security? Yeah. Well, I mean, there, I'm sure there was, but it wasn't like a big enough thing that it was like people wouldn't fly. The airlines just figured, well, we'd rather not like alienate the customers. So let's just mm -hmm. let them on the plane. And I mean, and this is probably a bigger part. Economically, a hijacking would cost maybe twenty dollars to $30,000 to the airline, where a big security screenings would cost millions. So it's actually financially beneficial to just let a plane be hijacked. That's wild, man. <laughs> yeah. But as hijackings became more and more common and more dangerous and expensive, like people flying all over the world and demanding millions of dollars, people started taking them more seriously. So in 1968, the FAA created an anti-hijacking task force to come up with solutions that would please the airlines. They even asked the public for suggestions. And how do you think that went? You guys got any ideas? <laughs> Some of the suggestions were to provide free transport to Havana, have an ejector seat for the hijacker. <laughs> <laughs> what does that even mean? I think just to shoot him off. So, but like, what is it? Like, oh, you're hijacking the plane. We have a special seat for you. <laughs> <laughs> like, what does that mean? <laughs> well, alternatively, there was another suggestion for an injector seat that would inject the hijacker with a syringe that would either sedate or kill them. I don't understand what, what's going on. So, <laughs> are, does that, like, in these two scenarios, does that mean every seat is a potential ejector or injector seat? Like, I don't what, know. <laughs> what if it goes off by accident? <laughs> I, think, I can't imagine that anybody seriously suggested these things. I mean, I think this is these are more suggestions from the public than, like, the FAA being like, Here's our plan. Still, I mean, someone in the public's like, yeah, sure, that's reasonable, sure. <laughs> um, 
There was also the idea to build a fake Havana airport in Florida so that they could, you know, when they hijacked the plane, they'd fly around and then land in Cuba and trick the hijackers into getting off and they'd just mm. still be in the US. Mm-hmm. But uh, believe it or not, none of those ideas really panned out. Shocking. <laughs> yeah. So ultimately, the FAA decided that ticket booths were the answer. And they wanted to train ticket agents to look for 25 behavioral cues that would indicate trouble. Some of these were not maintaining eye contact, not caring about their luggage, wearing military gear. And if ticket agents notice any of these cues, then they would ask for a security screening. However, this plan did not work out, you know, obviously because Barkley was not spotted uh, when he got on his plane with gasoline. Mm -hmm. So all these hijackings kept adding up and... This, you know, looking for suspicious people wasn't working either. Uh, So in November of 1972, three fugitives hijacked a plane and demanded $10 million or else they would crash the plane into a, a uranium reactor. So like a nuclear power reactor. Yeah. And it was that incident that made everyone realize that planes could be used as weapons of mass destruction. So finally, in January of 1973, universal physical screenings became mandatory. And that was by the government. Mm -hmm. So 12 years after 1961, which was like kind of the beginning of a lot of this. Yeah. And it wasn't until around the 80s that hijackings began to be seen as terrorism and the public started to become more aware and afraid of them as we know them today. And really, it was 9-11 now that really escalated the security to way, way more. So the story of a um, potential prank hijacking kind of led down this rabbit hole of like, well, why weren't people panicked? And then it's like, well, oh, hijackings happened all the time. Oh, why didn't they do security? Oh, because it you know, wasn't a big deal. It was just to Cuba. And then it had to keep escalating until finally they started universal uh, security checkpoints. Right. They should have been heading, in my opinion, they should have been heading it off, but they were just kind of like, pushing it down. It's like, yeah, nothing really bad's happening. Yeah. Like you, you you really should be addressing an issue before it becomes really bad. Yeah. Well, and they were like, well, doesn't, you know, people don't really want to get security screenings and it's too expensive. But all of a sudden whenever people are demanding millions of dollars and threatening to, I don't know, set off nuclear uranium reactors, then all of a sudden it's like, well, maybe it's worth the money to do security. Then they're ruining it for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's my episode of Black Box Down. It's crazy to see like the evolution of hijacking and, and plane takeovers from, like you said, people not taking it seriously and laughing at it to now where it's like all the security you have to go through to get on a plane. It's, and, and we still don't have ejector or injector seats. Yeah. So we'll probably post some pictures of these incidents like Raphael the heartthrob. See how good looking he is. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see about this. Maybe a, a picture of a, of the candid camera host. And maybe of a naked lady. Maybe a naked lady and see what you would say. Good evening, madam. <laughs> Do you have the time? <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, please check out uh, our social. What is it, Gus? You know what I do. Black Box Down Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and if you like this and want to share these crazy stories, uh, please do so with a friend. Yeah, or a, or a, that's what I would say to a naked lady. Oh, Excuse yeah. me, madam. Have you listened to Black Box Down? <laughs> <laughs> that's a perfect referral. So next time you're around someone naked, mention this podcast. Uh, it's, it's a great icebreaker. It's a great icebreaker. Um, and uh, be sure to give us a good rating, if you would, please. That'd be awesome. Yeah, please. We'll see you all next time. Bye. Hey guys, if you're all caught up with Black Box Down, then you should check out the new episodes of my other podcast, Good Morning From Hell. 
It's a comedy show where I'm dead and forced to interview everyone in hell as my eternal punishment with my co-host, Satan's little brother, Clayton. Every episode has a different guest ranging from Napoleon to Santa Claus, the Beatles, Bloody Mary, and even Voldemort. The best thing is you can jump right in and start listening from any episode, so do yourself a favor and find out what the afterlife is like. Just search for Good Morning From Hell wherever you listen to podcasts, or check the link in the description. Thanks!